Welcome to our podcast on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. We are so pleased today to be joined by Eddie. I call him the mogul. I'll get into that. Eddie the mogul dean, a legend of various activities. First of all, he has owned one of the largest nightclubs on the East Coast, perhaps the largest at one time on the East Coast, Pasha. We'll get into that. And he's involved with a number of other businesses, including investment in restaurants. Sometimes you hear him on Sirius XM, BPM Radio as a guest commentator. He's an expert in this EDM music. He's had tremendous guests, uh, DJs that come in there and do a great job. Currently out in Brooklyn, he owns Shemansky. What a fantastic nightclub that is. And uh, without further ado, do. Let's welcome in Eddie, the mogul dean. Eddie, welcome to our podcast today on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. Hello, Mayhall. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a great thing you got working here. I love it. I think you're doing a good thing. Thank you. Let me give you a little background here. So Eddie and I went to the same high school together. I've known Eddie since the seventh grade. And uh, we would meet every 10 years, let's say, at a reunion, and he would be sitting at the bar, and he'd say, Hey, Mayhill, I own a club out in Brooklyn. Why don't you come out and visit me sometime? And I'd be like, Yeah, sure, Eddie, but I lived in California at the time, and it never really lined up. But it's amazing how Facebook brings things together, because I would say eight years after our second reunion, we had one every 10 years, And he started commenting on some of my posts on Facebook. I commented on his, and we found out that we had some things in common. So long story short is Eddie said, why don't you come out to my nightclub? I've opened a a fair, it was about a year or two into it, Pasha, New York City. So one day I told my wife, I said, you know, we're going to New York for an aircraft uh, conference. I was in the aircraft chemicals and parts business. We had a conference downtown New York City. And I told my wife, I said, uh, Eddie has invited us to this, his club, Pasha. And so anyway, we went there on a Saturday night. I brought one of the other friends I've had from the industry. And the thing that really stood out is when you get there, the security was fabulous. The layout, how they let people in. I mean, Eddie left nothing a stone unturned. I was really, really impressed with that. And I get taken up to the VIP box with my wife, and uh, we end up hanging out with a guy who said he was a card shark in Vegas, and he got my wife on the dance floor and all that. I'll save that for another podcast. But anyway, back to this thing. I'm sitting there, and uh, I said to his VIP manager, I said, where's Eddie? She said, let me call him. So she calls Eddie, and Eddie is stuck in the Bahamas, I guess his plane got stuck. There was some weather problem or something. So Eddie wasn't coming. And so, but she said, Eddie said, don't worry about it. You got the VIP seat, put him in my box. We had a fantastic evening. And then uh, at the end, I said, hey, how much do I owe you for this? And she comes back and said, Eddie said, nothing. Everything's on the house. I couldn't believe it. And so I felt so bad and I wanted to meet the guy. So anyway, 
anyway, there was a burger joint in New York City. It's about two blocks from his office. There was a little pub and burger joint. And uh, Eddie said, I'll meet you there for dinner because I was still there for the conference. So it was really the first time that I sat down with Eddie and I thanked him for that evening we had at the club. And we shared each other's stories going all the way back to seventh grade. And one of the first things, and this is where I want to start with Eddie, that he told me, because when you're a kid, you think you're the only one in life that has problems. I mean, you look at the other guy, when you look at Eddie, he was a star football player. I don't know if we still call him jocks, but in those days, we called him jocks. Eddie was the sweater guy. All the girls were around Eddie. And you thought he had a wonderful, fantastic life. And the first thing he sits down and tells me, he says, all the kids thought that he was cheap. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, and I want Eddie to talk a little bit about that because I think it sets up for how he's, what he's accomplished in his life today. Eddie, can you comment on that, your experience in school and what all the kids thought of you? Well, look, I mean, it's, you know, a lot of that was, you know, I guess my interpretation of what I kind of thought they thought. But, you know, back then, things were much different, right? Much simpler back then. We're talking, my gosh, I don't want to date us, Mayho, but we're talking. Let's see, we're seventh grade. That puts us at about 13 years old. Mayho, that's 43 years ago. If you think about that, it's really funny to put that, just to put that in perspective. When we were in high school at the age of 18, if you went back 43 years from then in 19, 1982, that would bring you back to what? 1830s. excuse me, the 1930s. So like, uh, you know, that's a long time ago. But, you know, the fact was back then, you know, look, my parents were divorced and, you know, my dad wasn't around and my mom worked to kind of make ends meet. And, you know, look, we grew up in middle class Caldwell. And, you know, I mean, there was a lot of kids we went to school with that had money back then, you know, by standards at that time. And, you know, they had their own cars. I, I had to hold my car. I remember my bumper was, I had duct tape holding my bumper on. Um, you know, other kids had brand new cars and you know things like that. So like, you don't really have any money. And then I guess that sort of always sort of made me kind of hustle. And I remember, I know that you're thinking of a situation, a couple of guys were goofing on me one time we went for ice cream and I didn't get any ice cream. That's what I think you're talking about. And, uh, it's because I didn't have a buck or two dollars on me. And I didn't want to ask anyone to buy me an ice cream. So guys were goofing on me afterwards. Ah, oh, you're so cheap. You don't even want to buy an ice cream. And, you know, I guess it motivated me, things like that. I mean, I guess it probably bummed me out at them in the moment. But I think those are the types of things, you know, uh, probably when I look back, probably motivated me to just go out and get it, you know, go out and get it, you know, just not sit around and wait. No one was going to come hand it to me. And I kind of probably learned a couple of those lessons as a young guy that uh, I think came in handy in my lifetime, you know, any business, when you're in business for yourself, which I've been my whole career, you know, it's competitive and, you know, you got to fight for everything. And I think those are probably some of those lessons I was learning unconsciously back in those times. Exactly. And then uh, we talked about the fact that you went on from high school to University of Delaware. I always remember you. You were a kicker. Rich Gannon was your holder. I have a mistrust of kickers, but I'll tell you, Eddie is fantastic. Anything inside of 30 yards, he is guaranteed. I'm still thinking about him inside, uh, outside of 30, but uh, he grows on you. I think he's good from 40 plus. Eddie, then 
when you left Delaware, I know we were talking that night at the pub, you did some real estate and you did a little sports marketing and all of these things. But one story uh, that stands out at me, I don't know all the details, but I want to get some more was, I think you were down, I don't know if it was to help your father or whatever, but you were down to your last dollar and you pulled into a car uh, gas station and you didn't have enough money for gas and you left your watch there with the idea that you would come back and pay for the gas. Tell me the genesis of that story. Well, you know, look, I guess the one thing to point out is, you know, when I graduated Delaware, you know, I had an opportunity, I had a lot of opportunities to to, to work in a corporate world. And uh, I did try for a minute there to work for a sports marketing company, which again, looking back, they were so far ahead of the time that they, they had such a great concept, but it was like a, a college recruiting service before they really had them. And uh, funny enough, I worked with Scott Bruner's brother. Scott Bruner was a Delaware quarterback that went on to play for the Giants and had a you know a moment in the NFL there. And I never knew him. I actually came to know him later in life through a completely different relationship, which which is really funny. But I worked with his brother and it was a great gig, but I just wasn't making any money. And I just knew, I used to read, I still read a lot. But one thing I always noticed was anybody that was really successful, like wealthy, the one common denominator, this still holds today, they somehow have real estate. So I was really enamored. I wanted to become a real estate mogul, like your favorite term. And um, I wound up passing out a few Wall Street jobs that I probably would have done well at, but I just was never a guy. And again, you know me long enough. I sort of not a company guy. Like I was always an independent guy and working for a company. It was like a nightmarish thought for me to like have to wear a jacket and tie and go to an office and sit at a desk all day. Like, you know, keep it, you know, everyone else's numbers. Like I wanted to control my own destiny. And that's what led me to, you know, really just taking a crack at real estate. And the opportunity was in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, which, you know, that's the reason I wound up leaving Caldwell, you know, I moved to Bay Ridge and um, I got involved in the real estate game and I worked with a, a company there that, you know, allowed me to do everything from sales to uh, mortgages to appraisals. And I was learning all aspects of the business and I was loving it when my first opportunity came along for a bar that was going out of business. And it was interesting because I went to lunch one day with uh, one of the older guys in my office who had been a retired cop. And then he opened up a bar and he became a, he sold his bar. And he was just kind of working at the real estate office to pass some time. But uh, he was a very nice guy. And I like to go to lunch with him. And one day he was invited to go meet a couple of his friends that had just bought a place. And I went to the place and I remember walking in and he went off to the side and was meeting with these two owners. And I'm looking around the place and I'd never been in it before. And it was right in Bay Ridge where I was living, drove by it a hundred times. And I said to myself, damn, this place is, wow. I couldn't believe how big it was on the inside. I, I'm thinking this place has got potential and I couldn't understand. But then I started hearing these two owners and basically they were pleading with my friend Joe to come in as the third partner and really mediate. And one guy I knew, he was a, a bit of a drunk degenerate camp. Good guy. Everyone loved him. Very popular guy. But I knew he had some skeletons. The other guy I didn't know, but I came to know, he was an alcoholic cokehead. And you put these two guys behind, like it was such a like sort of toxic partnership. We left there and my buddy says, what do you think? Should I do it? I said, are you kidding me? Now at the time I'm 24. I said, there's no way they're ever going to change, Joe. I wouldn't go near that with a 10 foot pole. We went and had our lunch 
And then before the end of the day, he came over to me, Joe, and said, you know, Eddie, you ought to take that place. I said, take, what do you mean? I said, Joe, I have no money. Like, I have no wherewithal to do this. I, you know, I've never done it before. And I guess I was nervous. And after a couple of weeks going back and forth, Joe kept checking with me. And, I, and one day I just had this epiphany. I remember the moment, you know, and I said, I, and I thought to myself, no, I always wanted to have my own business. And I said, you know, instead of coming up with all these reasons not to do this, maybe I should spend a little time on trying to find a way to make it happen. But means I got to get some money together. I need an investor. I didn't know how to do that. Um, well, lo and behold, I knew a guy that had you know seen me hustling around in the neighborhood working hard. And he said to me, if you ever want to do a deal, let me know. So I went and we met and you know that's how I wound up taking over that first spot. And I remember telling Joe, I said, look, Joe, this is a great idea. I said, but you know, I'm not giving up the real estate. And I'll tell you, I'll never forget this guy, Joe, looked at me and says, Eddie, you're going to be good at this. He goes, you're going to be so good. You're never going to think about doing real estate again. And I, you know, I asked her, I said, I'm doing real estate. That's my dream. Well, Joe was the only when I called it. You know, I never really looked back at one little neighborhood bar in Bay Ridge. So Joe was right. He certainly was. Again, we're joined by Eddie Dean, the mogul himself, kicker extraordinaire on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. Eddie, uh, I guess we'll have to get that watch story out of you another time, but I'm going to get to that somehow. But uh, Eddie, uh, you transitioned from bartender to owner. Tell me about that transition because you work for someone else and now you're the owner of these bars and pubs. And uh, tell me what that feeling is like initially for our small business owners. Well, you know, I was bartending actually part time. And the reason for that was, you know, again, I had no money. And I just thought to myself, I was always trying to figure out how I can save money. And, you know, growing up not having any money, you know, the thought of, you know, I'm, I'm 24 now. I'm a grown up. You know, what am I going to do here? So I bartended and I loved it. And ironically, going from bartending to owning my own place, there sort of wasn't a connection there. It gave me exposure. But the reason I took that job working was I thought about it one time. I said, you know, I want to go out. You know, I like to have a couple of drinks, you know, like anyone else. And I thought, well, maybe I can get a job bartending. I can drink for free. I'll make money and I won't be spending money. So that's really the reason I got into it. But the opportunity came along to open up my first place faces was really through real estate. But, you know, you know, to answer your question, I was nervous. I was definitely, you know, not sure. Can I do this? And, you know, I mean, I was confident, you know, I'm in another neighborhood, right? I'm in Brooklyn. I'm a Jersey guy. So I'm in a neighborhood. It's full of wise guys. You know, you hear all these stories, you watch all these movies and, you know, like, you know, am I going to get, is the mafia going to come after me? Like, you know, these are all things you're, you know, I didn't have any experience. So I didn't know, but I guess in a way, I didn't know what to really really, really worry about. I just kind of worried about a lot of things. And in the end, a lot of it didn't matter. I just, I made a lot of mistakes. I was young. I was single. I didn't have a family to worry about every decision, you know? So I just basically was like, as they say in poker, I just went all in and, you know, I learned as I went and I made a lot of mistakes early, but I often, you know, I always say, you know, to my staff now, you know, you just learn from your mistakes. But another major lesson is don't always wait to make your own mistakes. Learn from other people's mistakes. You got to be really observant. You should do a lot of reading, a lot of research how to do diligence and learn from other people's mistakes too. Well, that was one of my questions. I was just listening to you and I'm thinking, how much do you manage by reading, by seeing what's happening in the market, 
it, doing research, and how much of what you do is based on instinct. I mean, I find that the business I've built, I had no kind of way toward it because I kind of fell into it. So a lot of what I did was by feel and instinct. And then of course you do research things as you go. I was curious about that concept, how much of what you do even today is driven by your own kind of feeling and instinct versus your actual research and your business plan and your investment strategy and your return? Well, there's a lot of different aspects to that question. And I don't know, I have 12, 13, 14 places in my career and knock on wood, they've all been successful. And one of the most often asked questions I get if I'm ever on any of these sort of panels at these conventions, whatever, is, you know, what's your secret, Eddie? You know, people say, oh, what's your secret? You know, all your places have been successful. And it's a little bit of a cliche, but I always say, you know, really, it's not to say the 12 deals that I did, it's the 300 that I didn't do. And one of the biggest things I see with people just in general, like, you know, a lot of people are indecisive. And I think if you're going to be in business, you know, you have to be decisive. It doesn't seem like it may be a big issue, but I've had people, managers that have worked for me. I've had partners over the years that they just won't make a decision. In some cases, they're just not confident. Some cases they have big egos and they're afraid to be wrong. I learned really early in my career, it's okay to be wrong. Because when you're the boss, you know, you make so many decisions in the course of a day, a lot of little ones. And I'll come home, my wife will say, how was your day today? And my answer is like, I said, I don't know. I think it, it seemed to go well, but I won't know how my day today was until six months from now when all of those little decisions sort of kind of come to fruition. And each one of those little decisions adds up really in whether you're successful or not. And if you're indecisive, don't go into business for yourself because you're going to die in the vine. You got to make decisions and you have to be okay with being wrong. You have to have the confidence, the backbone to accept that you're not going to be right all the time. It stands to reason, right? You know, you make the most decisions, you're going to make the most wrong, but you cannot have an ego that doesn't allow you to change your decision. You know, when you're wrong, if someone comes to me after I made a decision and makes some po positive like observations, I'll say, you know what? You're right. All right, shift. Go back. No, do the other thing. And you have to be willing to adjust. Every football coach, I mean, I use a lot of sports paraphrases here, references. You know, you go into a football game. If you fall behind 14 nothing, your game plan changes. So you have to adjust. And it's the same with business. You know, you may go in with a certain plan, but some things happen that are outside of your control. Nothing you can ever anticipate. You should always have in the back of your mind, be prepared for the unexpected, you know, never be so comfortable that things are going to go swimmingly. You know, who expected a pandemic? So it's like, you just never know what's going to happen. It could be anything. Eddie, let's get to the biggest, to me, one of the best decisions, but one of the probably for you as well, the biggest, which was to take that license out of Ibiza and open that fantastic nightclub, New York City, Pasha. Uh, one of the things I'll always remember about that is the first time I did meet you there, which was about a year later, I said, Eddie, this place is fantastic. You've got such a great run going here. And I remember you saying to me, he said, let me tell you something something. In this business, five years is a great run. If I get five years out of this place, I'm going to be totally satisfied, you know, because of the fad and the changes in the way people go to different nightclubs. I want to let my audience know, Eddie didn't get five years out of Pasha. He got 10 years at the top of his game out of it. So tell me about that decision to jump into Pasha and, and what that was like. Well, you know, at that time, it's really funny. A lot of people don't know 
know, and I don't know if we've ever touched on this in our many, many discussions over the last, you know, 15 years, but, um, you know, right before Pasha came along, I had, you know, two other places, you know, downtown Manhattan at the time. One place was called Discotheque, which was like a smaller, intimate nightclub. I often referred to it, my concept there was the stone pony of dance music. I wanted to have a small venue with a great sound system where I could bring the biggest talent in the world to play for their real true fans. And it, it did very, very well. And then I also had a concept theme called Tiki Room around the corner. And I was so burnt out and tired and tired of the regulations and tired of the harassment from the authorities and the health department. Like it was just relentless. I was looking to get out of the business and follow my original dream and get back into real estate. And this opportunity came along with this big box and this big, you know, defunct nightclub that went out of business. And, you know, being a competitive guy, being a sports minded guy, you know, you always want to be the best, the tops, you want to, you know, go for the gold. And I was really torn. I was either going to get out of the business or I was just going to go for it. And I remember I had a conversation with my wife and I said, you know, I started with a little neighborhood bar, you know, trying to rub two sticks together to start a fire back in 1989. I knew nothing. I've made my way up. I own multiple places in Brooklyn. I went to the big city finally, you know, and I opened up a place in Manhattan in 98, 99. And I own, I had theme place. I had a concept called Rockin' Doc. I really touched on so many things, but the notion, the idea of having the biggest club in New York, which, by the way, makes it the biggest club, not on the East Coast, as you referred to earlier, Mayhall, the biggest club in America. When you got the biggest club in New York, that means you got the biggest club in America, which means, by the way, you got the biggest club in the world. Okay, let's, let's, you know, come on. These, that's what you get from the kicker. You have to take that. Uh, he puts it through the post and... Uh... He's going to tell you, but go ahead, Mogul. Yeah, exactly. I got, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, correct you on your, one of your original podcasts. At that time, there was so much competition, but the competitive side of me was like going out to these other big clubs and seeing what they're doing. I'm saying, I think I can do better than this. You know, I think I can do it, you know? And there was one particular nightclub that was very, very popular. I mean, they were steamrolling everybody. If you look back at the press back then, everyone was asking me in you know magazines, well, why are you doing this? Why would you, you know, why would you do this? You know, and remember where we're located, Posh was more or less, it was Midtown West. Like there was no clubs, like it was really sort of out of the way. The club scene is predominantly in downtown, meatpacking, and you know, we were nowhere near that. And on paper, this was really sort of not the smartest thing to do at the time. But I had a couple of partner investors and, you know, we were coming up with all these names and ideas and none of them resonated with me. I just wasn't comfortable. I felt we're going to need more firepower. And frankly, I didn't know much about Ibiza at the time. I had never even heard of Pasha. But again, back then, the AOL dial-up, wee, 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 you know, I, you know, went on there and, and I started searching around the world for clubs. And I came across a magazine that ranks top 100 clubs in the world. And I see a cluster in the top 10 in Ibiza, Ibiza. I couldn't even pronounce it. And I started looking into it a little bit. And at that time, one of my close friends and my, you know, one of the more popular DJs in the world was Eric Marilla. So I spoke to Eric and I said, you know, what do you know about this Ibiza? He says, Eddie, I go there every summer. I have a residency at this place called Pasha. I said, oh, I read about it. What is that? And so that got the discussion going. And, you know, he did an introduction and I spoke to them. And it was a family business since 1967, a family from just outside Barcelona in a small town called Sitges, S-I-T-G-E-S. And the father had a bar there. And he eventually opened up a second place in Ibiza in 1966. Well, 
1973, technically, for the, the uh, nightclub aficionados in your podcast world there, Mayo. And I really pressed to get this deal done because I felt at that time, if I could bring a brand from the other, from like Europe, which is really a hotbed for nightclubs, and I could bring the top brand to New York, I felt like that would be newsworthy. And I really felt in order to sort of trump these other big nightclubs that were kicking ass in New York at the time, I needed something different, a hammer. And I was persistent and I wound up making a deal with this family. And they were very apprehensive at first about, you know, you know, risking their brand. They knew how competitive and hard New York was. And the last thing, they were scared to death of the brand coming to America and New York, the biggest media capital of the world, and failing. So I really had to go through a pretty rigorous interview process with the family and really convince them and, and give them the confidence that I was their guy. And in the end, obviously, they, they agreed to terms and uh, we opened it up. And had a 10-year run, which, you know, eventually led to me opening a Pasha in China, which was a big breakthrough for them. Uh, we opened up a Pasha in Macau, China, just as I closed Pasha New York in 2016. So, you know, I had, uh, you know, done a lot. The two biggest Pashas outside of Ibiza, you know, the, the granddaddy, you know, I was a part of. So that's something I'm proud of. But, you know, it was a crucial decision to bring Pasha into the fold. It was a fantastic run. And I'll tell you, we have just a little time left and getting back to the Caldwell and linking the whole thing together. One of the great stories I remember was I, one of the first times I actually met Eddie in there. He says, uh, look over there. And we were looking at the VIP box there and there was Mo Vaughn. Mo Vaughn had played for the uh, Mets and the uh, Red Sox and the Angels and so on. And he said, um, there's Mo over there. He's one of my regulars. And I said, Eddie, you need to go over and take care of Mo. He's one of your customers. He said, no, don't worry, I'm with you. I said, I'm just a, you know, a guy that grew up with you. And he said, you know, we're from Caldwell. We're, that's where Caldwell, New Jersey. We're from West Caldwell and Caldwell, New Jersey. And Eddie said, blood is thicker than water. Mo can wait. And it was like, wow. And there's Mo Vaughn. <laughs> of course, he was having a great time. I tell you, I, I love that place. I, I miss it. Before we go, Eddie, we're running out of time. Uh, tell me about uh, some of your latest ventures. I'm sure people who stop into the New York area would like to visit some of the things you do have going right now. Number one, Shemansky, uh, is that going to be opening again after the uh, COVID uh, crisis settles down? And tell me a little bit about Shemansky uh, in, out in Brooklyn. You return to your roots in Brooklyn. Yeah, that's true. Um, I started in Brooklyn and I wound up back in Brooklyn. And uh, it's, uh, you know, we've been open there for over three years now. And, um, you know, we, we've we'll talked about changing game plans. I mean, we opened up as a techno nightclub heavily influenced by German techno scene, European techno scene. And, you know, I, I just adjusted where I've really diversified the club over the last two, three years. And I do everything from, you know, you know, rock stuff. I do dance music stuff as I always have. I featured hip hop a lot more. So, you know, we've really evolved how that club has, um, I guess, represented itself now a lot over three years. I mean, it's, you know, sort of like your New York Jets, you know, constantly trying to get better. Uh, I wish I had an answer. I mean, honestly, uh, as I sit here right now, will I reopen after this pandemic breaks? It's hard to say because, uh, you know, I'm sort of at the, the mercy of our landlord, you know, I mean, we're, we've been closed now for two plus months and, you know, New York is way behind the times. 
just don't want to get into politics. I'll go on forever. But things are really, really, really over-traumatized, I think. You know, I know it's serious. I get all that. But, you know, I just think there should be more of an effort, you know, to, to pick up the pace and get people back work. And uh, I really am concerned about the future of New York. And, you know, it's resilient. It's this, that. But we're living in a different time. And the people that are in power of authority right now in New York, the city council, they're, they have different plans for New York. I think they're more worried about bike paths than they are about jobs and, you know, real estate market. And I mean, I think New York could, I honestly don't think the other shoe was dropped in New York. I think that, you know, on a scale of one to 10, the damage, you know, could be a nine. And I think right now it's two or three. So, I mean, I've really taken, uh, Time will tell, but the flip side, you know, looking at the glass half full, I do believe there's going to be a lot of opportunities that come out of tough times like this. And there could be some really compelling locations, venues. You know, I can wind up with three new places, you know, when the dust settles. I can wind up with none. I really right now just have an open mind about thing. And plus... Let's not forget your full-time job being your uh, business and stock consultant. I appreciate that. The check's in the mail, Eddie. It's my pleasure to keep you busy. Final question for you, Eddie, here. Let me tell, what about this Dean Entertainment Group? I don't I don't mean what happens in your house all day. I mean, uh, this DEG, the uh, outside business. Uh, on a serious question, what's the future of concerts? Because what we're saying now under this COVID thing is we've all got to stand six feet from each other and kind of wear masks and not get near each other. And how's that going to translate? I'm in South Carolina right now, as you know, down here at a little last minute family vacation. We just came from dinner. There was a little extra spacing. You know, I'm sure they could squeeze more tables into this restaurant. Bartenders weren't wearing masks. None of the customers were wearing masks. I'm telling you, there was absolutely zero sign other than a few employees, like the busters, the servers coming to the table. They were wearing, you know, uh, masks. Interesting. uh, There was a little sign there saying, if you like your server to wear a mask, please let us know. So like, to me, that's a proactive approach to getting back to normal. So, you know, I know Arizona, you're seeing a lot of reports over Memorial Day weekend of the beaches in Maryland being crowded. You know, I just think that we're going to start seeing the pace pick up. Concerts, Unfortunately for me, Mayhall, right? I'm in the club business and the concert business, right? The DEG, which stands for Dean Entertainment Group, that's my concert, my marketing promotional business. Uh, formerly RPM Presents, which is, you know, back in my Pasha days, my, my then partner, Rob Fernandez, and I started a company just to service the likes of David Guetta, Calvin Harris, Avicii, you know, Armin Van Buren, Alesso, my gosh, the Chainsmokers, Travis Scott, who else? Uh, I can go on and on, all the big shows that all these artists were outgrowing my club in order to continue and maintain relationships and not lose them to competitors or bigger promoters like Live Nation, I sort of had to create a new entity and and go out and find big venues as these guys graduated from my club to more of the pop star side of things. You know, we did Avicii's first really big breakout show that really put him on the map and brought all sorts of attention to EDM music, which, you know, after that show, next thing you know, Live Nation starts booking dance music shows. So we did a lot of the heavy lifting early on. And again, as New York goes, the rest of the country goes. So, you know, we were on the front end and pretty much every top EDM artist that's come to America, their first stop was Posh in New York. So, you know, my partner Rob passed away, unfortunately, a couple of years ago, 2015. Um, it'll be five years, actually, um, you know, the end of June. And uh, we kept the name there for a while. But, you know, after four years, I just felt a lot of my staff, everything had changed. So I just took the opportunity in 2017, actually, excuse me, 2018, 
18, I kind of took a step back and uh, I rethought things and I came up with a new name and, you know, I broke out this past year, 2019, under the new name and started the new company. So that's the EG. But as far as concerts go, buy Live Nation. I'm telling you, it's in the low 40s right now. They're going to come back. They have a huge market share around the world and they're way oversold. And when things come back, you know, the rich get richer and they're going to probably wind up bigger and stronger than ever. So that'll be a $100 stock a year, year and a half from now. So buy L-Y-N, Live Nation. Great promotion from Live Nation here from Eddie, the mogul dean who joined us today on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. Eddie, I really want to thank you today for coming Uh, taking time on your holiday to join us. I hope our listeners got a great vision. We'd love to have you back again. We can go on, on, and on about various things, but I just want to let you know that we really appreciate you taking time and coming today on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. Thank you so much, Eddie. Thank you, Mayo. It was fun as always. Keep up the good work, uh, and I think you're doing something really good here. Uh, Congrats. Best of luck. Thank you, Eddie. Take care.